We're going to have a really exciting show tonight because we're going to talk about looking for life, not in Brooklyn, here in Brooklyn, New York. There may be life here. We're going to look for it elsewhere in the cosmos. And uh, let me introduce who's going to be here on stage. To begin with, Chuck Nice. And second up, Alan Sakian. Alan, science communicator, host of the Eureka Science Comedy Show, Alan. Hello, everyone. Woo! Let me point out that Alan has helped organize the entire World's Fair Nano event. Glad you could make it. Yeah, it may be, you know, it's a major job, even though it's a nano event. Yes. And next year he's going to, you know, organize World's Fair Micro. Yes. It'll be a thousand times. Off we go. Okay. Just working your way up. Yeah. Yeah. Working working. your way up the scale. Up the scale. Our special guest tonight, all the way here from California, which is even beyond New Jersey, Dr. (laughs) Dr. Doug Vakoch. Doug, come on out. You got it? Doug is the president and founder of METI International. That's M-E-T-I. And that's messaging extraterrestrial intelligence. So we're not going to just talk about looking for the aliens. We're going to talk about how you might communicate with them and uh, maybe what you would say if you did. Doug, thanks. Thanks for coming. Great to be here. Thanks. Okay. So that's kind of where we are, right? All right. Uh, Let's get to it. Excitement. Yeah. All right, first off, how many of you people out there think there is life in space? Not the kind of pond scum you may find at home, but intelligent life. Wow. Pretty good. Uh, on radio, nobody can hear you raise your hand unless you have arthritis. Right. And, and how many of you think, no, they're not out there? All right, get that guy out of here. All right, None. good. None. Let, let's start with a panel here. What do we know about life in space? What have we found so far? Doug, what have we found so far? Well, we've found a lot of static so far, uh, and that's what we've been looking for. So uh, SETI scientists, scientists involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, look for radio signals, unlike the kind of radio that galaxies and stars make. We haven't found those yet, but I, I think the big news is over the last 20 years, there have been a lot of things we have found. So just over 20 years ago, we knew of no stars that have planets. Now we go out and look at the night sky and virtually all of those stars have planets. Maybe one out of five of those has planets at just the right distance that it could support life with liquid water. We didn't know about that um, when, when SETI began. Uh, and we know that life can survive in incredibly diverse environments here on Earth, from um, the, the Arctic tundra of the north to acid hot springs, to the core of nuclear reactors. So once even, life- even Camden, New Jersey. Yes, yes, even Camden, New Jersey. So if life can survive there, it's a very good chance it's out there. Now we just need to find it. All right, so what you're saying is there's a lot of real estate, but we haven't seen any condos. No, no condos. Now, there, there was actually a suggestion that there could be not just a condo, but an entire city uh, in orbit. This was a a star uh, that actually you looked at the SETI Institute uh, and we looked at uh, at Medi International uh, and it was a star that the Kepler mission, this is a NASA mission to look for planets around other stars and they look at that by seeing the dimming as the planet goes 
So if you're, if you're the Kepler spacecraft, you're observing a star, I'm the star, and every time a planet goes between us, there's a little dimming. And if this is a planet the size of Jupiter or Saturn, one of the big ones in our solar system, the dimming would be less than 1%. There's something strange about this one star, up to 20% dimming. And one of the explanations was maybe it's an alien megastructure. So Seth at the SETI Institute used the Allen Telescope Array to say, well, if they're engineers there, maybe they're sending us radio signals. Uh, we used a, an optical observatory in Panama to see if they're sending brief laser pulses. No sign of that. And so our expectation is we're going to find a natural explanation. Nature is freakier than we can imagine. And uh, in, in a lot of cases, these turn out to be false alarms. So, so far, unfortunately, no sign of ET's technology. Can I okay. just say that one of my favorite aspects about searching for extraterrestrial life is dwarfing the human ego. I'm so excited for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I got married. <laughs> well, when you, when you do set your meta, you can do both. We've actually, you know, our, our egos are regularly dwarfed, but I think you're right. And, and we got married too, so that also helps. <laughs> uh, but I think you're right because, you know, you look out in the vastness and you say, uh, are we really the center of the universe? Probably not. So we, we took a big hit um, when Copernicus said, our Earth isn't at the center of the universe. And Bruno got burned at the stake before that. He got burned at the stake for saying maybe there is other life out there. You know, another blow to the ego when, yeah. when um, Darwin said we're not at the pinnacle of evolution. So a third blow to the ego. Actually, I think some people are, are afraid we're not going to seem so special. I don't think we have anything to worry about. The idiot, there's not going to be any other form of humanity out there. Maybe more intelligent, maybe more wise never more human. Yeah, but, but, you know, that's actually a good point, Alan, that we tend to look for aliens that are kind of like us, right? I mean, the aliens you see in the movies, they're kind of like you, right? In fact, they may like you too much in the movies. They, they, they have, you know, big eyes, they have a nose, they have a head. They look like you. And I, I'm fond of pointing out that if, if one of those aliens moved in next door, you know, a little gray guy, no hair, you know, no, no clothes, no name, whatever. You, you probably talk about him for a while, and then eventually you'd invite him over for dinner because he kind of looks like you, right? Either that or I'd build a wall to keep him out. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but look, yeah, but Chuck, look at it from his point of view, right? Okay, well... And, and the life that you're looking for might not even be carbon-based life. It might not be DNA encoded life. It might be completely different. Could be. DNA is probably an accident. Carbon-based, maybe not an accident, right? Uh, you know, you've probably got 92 bottles of different elements at home, which you look at occasionally. And the only ones that actually ever make complicated molecules tend to be carbon. carbon. Yeah. Carbon is great. Just ask, you know, Exxon. Carbon is great for making complicated molecules. So I don't know about that. But, but, and we're not talking about that today. If we are here in this century to invent synthetic intelligence, right? Thinking machines, the kind of things that are going to take your job within 10 years, right? Oh. That's if you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm tired of working. Chuck, Chuck is happy about comedy is very abstract. It'll take a while for a machine. Well, I'm not very good at it. I tell you, Chuck, there's some, some guy who's a, a big wheel in artificial intelligence. Uh, I was talking to this guy a couple of weeks ago, and he said, if your job involves doing something repetitive, you have 10 years. Uh, and if it doesn't, if it's creative, right, maybe you have 20 years. Maybe two days. Yeah. 
So there but, you but go. Even, even the creative stuff. I think artificial intelligence has a chance. I think your job may be at Jeopardy. One of, uh, one of our advisors. Kim, I, I think Kim, that's an indictment Kim, no, of my comedy. Kim, I don't know. Kim, Kim, Kim Binstead, uh, uh, a computational linguist, did a research project where she created a computer that could tell jokes. And one of the jokes it created was, what do you call Martian beer? An alien. Not good jokes, but jokes. <laughs> Alien. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the bar is low. All right. So we got SETI and Medi. Yeah, we also have Medi, but let's just finish up with SETI. SETI is listening, right? But because the, the aliens might be very far away. That might be, you know, 100 light years. That would be pretty close. They might be 1,000 light years. That's a little bit farther. So, you know, uh, any signal that might be reaching us from 100 or 1,000 light years away, that signal was transmitted 100 years ago or 1,000 years ago, whatever, mm -hmm. right? So, but, you know, maybe it's just getting here now, and all you have to do is take a big antenna, aim it at the sky, tune to the right frequency, and maybe you hear something that's, you know, 1,000 years old or something like that. Okay, so that's what's normally done. That's SETI, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Seth, but, Seth, before you go any further, can I ask what may be a silly question? But since you, this is what you do, um, is, is it necessary to point and listen in different directions? And if so, how do you know where to point and listen? Yeah, well, that's actually that's a good question for which there's no terrifically good answer. Uh, the, the facts are we don't know where the aliens are hanging out. I mean, you know, I never got a text message, hey, uh, where the Klingons <laughs> love to get in touch, and we're over here. So you can say, well, all right, the way to beat that rap is just to look at the entire sky. The trouble with that is if you do that, you're spending most of your time looking in the wrong directions, right? You might liken it to finding life in the desert. You can look at the whole desert, but it might be more effective to just look at the oases. Yeah. So we try and do that. We look at nearby stars Good that analogy. might have planets, you know, that are the kind of stars and planets that might have life. Okay, so that's SETI, but Doug here, has another idea. Why wait for them to call or why hang around hoping to pick up their call? Why don't we try and take the initiative and get in touch? And that's Medi. Tell them about Medi. Well, SETI has always assumed that any alien that has the ability to transmit is also going to be motivated uh, and that they're just altruistically beaming messages here for our benefit. And we hope that's true, at least of some civilizations. So that's why even at our organization, METI, we're still listening. We're looking for laser pulses. We're hopeful that that continues. But we also want to uh, explore another option, and that is that uh, they're not taking the initiative, that maybe, in fact, life is out there much more widely spread than we had imagined. There was an Italian physicist called Enrico Fermi, who in 1950 said, well, if there's all this life out there, where are they? It's called the Fermi Paradox. And one of the answers to the Fermi Paradox is, maybe in fact they are observing us, but that's it. They, they, they want to hear from us before they respond. So it's a little bit like, say you go to the zoo and you're observing a bunch of zebras, and it's all very well and good. You're seeing them talk to one another, but what happens? One of those zebras turns toward you, looks you in the eye, and starts pounding out a series of prime numbers. That establishes a very different relationship with that creature. It may just evoke a response. You're not gonna say, oh, they're just chattering with one another, they wanna talk to us. So that's what we're testing with METI. 
testing the zoo hypothesis to see whether even nearby stars might be inhabited. Now, in the zoo hypothesis, am I smoking anything, how shall I say, other than tobacco? You, not, you don't need to be smoking anything other than tobacco. You just got to be willing to do the experiment. Uh, and, you know, it's something that's unusual for a lot of astronomers because astronomers are very good scientists, but it's a passive science. You just wait for the information to come in. That's what you have to do if you're trying to study a distant galaxy. It's a different mindset to say, wait, we can actually be more active. We can send out a message and then get a reply back. All right, so I hate to be silly here because yeah. I know this is a serious conversation, <laughs> but I believe there was an episode of Star Trek where we, uh, we kind of did that. And then we got something called the Borg. I'm not sure if anybody here is a Star Trek fan. But, you know, they weren't nice people. <laughs> the, and the Borg, the Borg out there, and you know, uh, uh, there are other people who share your view. Stephen Hawking has said, you know, if you get a signal, do not transmit or the aliens might come here. I, I've got bad news for both you and Stephen Hawking. Okay. Which, if, by the way, I'm going to write this down in my diary now. That you got compared <laughs> with Stephen Hawking. Put me in a category with go. Stephen Hawking. You and Stephen Hawking are overlooking one critical point. What's that? Well, if the Borg want us, it's too late. Because they've already picked up I Love Lucy. Uh, they've picked up our radio signals. If you can travel, if you, if you can build one of those huge Borg cubes, then picking up our radio signals is no big deal. I mean, Seth, you, you've run the numbers. If you look at how much our radio telescopes have grown and then just continue that two, three hundred years, we would be able to pick up our own level of leakage radiation up to 500 light years. So the, the bad news is it's too late. The good news is it looks like there's not a big worry because not only have our radio and TV signals been going out a long time, we have been giving evidence that we have life on Earth for two and a half billion years. Since, since the plankton started creating oxygen in the atmosphere. So if there are any really paranoid aliens who want to wipe out the competition, they have plenty of time to get here. And if they are on their way, I say let's be proactive and say we're much more interesting in interstellar conversation than being annihilated. Look, I think we ought to come back to this because this is a hot-button issue. Uh, whether it's a good idea to broadcast into space. But I'm still back with that uh, zebra at the zoo. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, blinking prime numbers in my direction. I mean, my reaction to that would be, you and I are going on the road because any zebra that could do that, I mean, what else can he do, right? So, uh, but I think that the, the, the point is, you're assuming something about their psychology if you say, look, all we have to do is uh, send them, uh, you know, some interesting tweets or whatever. And, and then they will do something in return that will justify that effort. Now, you're trained in psychology, so... Absolutely. You, you have to assume their motivations, but that's what SETI scientists have been doing all along. We have been assuming that they are going to do the heavy lifting, that they are going to be transmitting for our benefit. And again, I hope that's true for some of the aliens, but not all aliens may have the same motivation. And if even, even this idea of being altruistic, we know from looking at altruism on Earth that one form of altruism is called reciprocal altruism. You do something for me and I do something for you. The trick is someone's got to make the first move. And it may be that they look at us and say, wait, we're supposed to go out of our way? We've been doing this for thousands or millions of years. We've been through this. Not a big added advantage to, to contact you. You're the ones who have the most to benefit, so you should take the initiative. It, you know, sometimes we talk about interstellar communication as joining the galactic club. 
what I find so irritating, no one ever talks about paying our dues or even submitting an application. But that's what it is to send a signal saying we want to make contact. Maybe yeah. it's what we need to make contact. An application. Yeah, I like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Let's hope it's not a restricted club. There you go. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it's like the Groucho Marx comment about not wanting to... <laughs> Must have. I, I, th- I think that is. It's a, it's a sense of an inferiority complex. What do we have to say that a civilization a million years more advanced than we could want to hear? But I, I think... I, I, I don't think we're the most intelligent or the most wise civilization, I'll put my money on us being the civilization in the entire galaxy that has the best balance between joy and sorrow. I don't think anywhere but the current time right now in our civilization can make us more unique. I think what we offer, you know, we want to always put our best foot forward, show off how powerful and strong we are. We're not on a galactic scale. The thing that we most have to offer is just saying, here is who we are as humans, And it might just help a civilization that has been around so long that the idea of annihilating itself, they can't even conceive of. The idea of being mortal is beyond their capacity. So I think that's where we really have something to offer of showing them who we are as human beings. Human beings, the C students of the galaxy. (laughs) But you had to start somewhere. This is a reminder of kindergarten. All right. So we're going to have to... We're going to have to take a break here for a moment, but when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about this because I want to know if if Doug is going to speak for you and talk to the cosmos, right, do you care what he says? I mean, he has these ideas about the aliens being, you know, pretty benign, uh, interested in you because you're at a very special point in history. Let's let's get back to that when we get back to Star Talk All-Stars. Woo! All right, we're back at Star Talk All-Stars with Chuck Nice, Alan Sakian, and Doug Vakoch. I'm your host, Seth Shostak. I'm an astronomer at the SETI Institute in the lovely Bay Area on the other coast. And our job is to try and look for life in space. Doug is interested in communicating with life in space. Let me ask you this, Doug. If you're going to broadcast into space, and I take it that's what METI is all about, right? Uh, you know, what about the message? Are you just going to send an empty tone that's to say, hey, there's something here on Earth? Or are you going to actually give them a message, pictures, something? We're going to be sending a message. So uh, our organization began in 2015. We laid out our plans. What do we plan to accomplish by the end of 2018? So by the end of 2018, we'll be transmitting powerful intentional signals to nearby stars. Uh, and we're, we're taking a, a, an approach that's somewhat different from the past. First of all, um, we're focusing on nearby stars. There have been a few symbolic transmissions in the past that we'll actually get to in a minute, I think. But the the key issue is, in the past, we've often transmitted to very distant stars. We're focusing on nearby stars. uh, And we're also going to send them repeatedly, over and over again. That helps to uh, actually let the SETI scientists on other worlds uh, know whether we are uh, encountering. And so what we see now... We know that there are plenty of stars out there that have planets. Uh, A a recent discovery is the TRAPPIST uh, star, TRAPPIST-1, 40 light years from Earth. It has uh, at least seven planets, and three of them are lying in the habitable zone, the zone called the Goldilocks zones, not too hot, not too cold, just right for liquid water. 
So there are a lot of places. So this is the kind of star, but there are ones that are even nearer than that so that you could get a response back within a lifetime. Okay, these are not stars. That's a, those are all planets. The stars yeah. on the left yeah. are scale. Now, TRAPPIST-1 system, 40 light years away, that's not much. De Blasio probably has that on his Honda, right? In terms of vastness of the that's cosmos, right. for sure, yeah. So you could send a message to this group of planets. And by the way, you may note that all these planets in the TRAPPIST-1 system, the ones we know about, we know about seven, they're, they're, they're shown in this slide, which are particularly vivid on radio. You'll notice they're all about the same size as the Earth. That's very unusual. You think in our solar system, you've got Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, kind of the same size. But then you have Jupiter, Saturn, you know, they're very different size. Okay, these are all about the same. Three of them are at the right distance where maybe you could have some biology, maybe you have liquid oceans, atmospheres, that kind of thing. So maybe this isn't just a place where there's an, an inhabited planet. Maybe this is a whole inhabited ecosystem. Now, here's the question then. If, you, if you're broadcasting to some system like this, it's 40 light years away, right? You're going to run out of money before you get your reply, right? Well, there's a common misconception that you need to transmit continuously uh, in order to the, for this to make any sense. What happens if their SETI scientists are doing what we do, we look at a star for a few minutes, nothing's transmitting, we move on to the next one, and we've lost it because we only transmitted once. So that mirrors the idea, as you talked about at the beginning, Seth, if we think of aliens as being like ourselves. What we don't take into account is just a little bit more advanced than we are with our SETI search, and they can be looking at us all the time. So in fact, the SETI Institute is now in the process of building an optical SETI observatory that will look everywhere in the sky all the time. So even if that signal comes by just once, it's enough to ping them. And so you have now an economically viable way of you go to one star, you ping it, you move on to the next star, you ping it, but you don't have to be transmitting all the time. You do, though, need to have one thing that we are in very short supply of here now, and that's patience. Because TRAPPIST-1, you send a signal, and we can get a reply back. If they don't take too long and take it to their equivalent of the United Nations to get consensus, we get a reply back by the end of this century. So it's going to take 80 years to get a reply back. And there are other stars that are closer. The, the nearest star, Proxima Centauri, a little over four light years away, so it would take eight years to get a round trip. But I think the biggest opposition to METI from within the SETI community is not that it's a danger to the aliens coming here, but it's just, do we have the capacity as a civilization to take on that kind of a long-term task? And the reality is, you know, the, the early days of SETI have reflected that we are an adolescent civilization. We did the easy thing. We looked in a way that could give us results to benefit us now. What a better way of characterizing an adolescent than us and now. What we're proposing is that as we move into the next half century, we expand that to think about what we can do for others, other civilizations and future generations of humans, and a project that takes a lot longer than we're comfortable with, decades or centuries. So, so this was um, the Allen Telescope Array, and so you use this to listen, and then this is the Bouquet Optical? That's right, and so the, the beauty, if we go back to the oh. Allen Telescope Array, the beauty of this telescope, and Seth and I were colleagues there for 16 years before I left to found the Medi International, beauty of the Allen Telescope Array is that it is such a flexible system. The first SETI search that was done in 1960, you could look at only one frequency. The technology was so limited. 
Now with the Allen telescope array, you can look at billions of different frequencies. So it takes a lot of the guesswork out. And secondly, and this is something that the Allen telescope has that a lot of the other major SETI systems uh, in the world today don't and have. These are used for li listening. The, we use them to listening, not, yeah. for, not for transmitting. Uh, we can do an immediate follow-up because you get glitches all the time. You get a, a, a spike that is going to happen just by chance. But in the past, there's always been a question, oh, is this an alien? With the Allen telescope, you can follow up immediately and say, nope, it was just uh, an anomaly. And so there's no evidence of ET. And so what, what, what determines an anomaly? Is it, I mean, I know what an anomaly means, but yep. could it not be that it was something and it just happened once, but it really was something? It, it could be, but you have to have a sense of skepticism. You know, in the movies, if you ever see this kind of an experiment in the movies, right, people are sitting around with earphones, and they're, they're looking bored, they're practicing, they're putting, they're doing whatever, right? And then that, some, that all does really happen, yeah. I said that to the boss once, and he, he reached behind his bookcase and pulled out a putter. That, that's true. But in any case, the, the, the reality isn't quite like that. The point is you get signals all the time. You're not sitting around waiting for a signal. Uh, when we were using not this antenna, but another one that uh, is, is it actually, the, is it yeah, not that one either. Okay. Uh, one of the 30 that we have here. Uh, the one down in Puerto Rico, the Arecibo oh, telescope. Yeah. yeah, this one here, thousand feet across. I reckon it could hold four billion scoops of Baskin Robbins. You know, I was looking at the uh, instruments, and you know, we were getting signals every ten seconds. So, what is an anomaly? Anomaly is a signal that has the technical characteristics of being something that might be being broadcast by something up there, and that—that's that, a fairly uninteresting story. But if you find something like that, you can either say, "I wonder what it is." Or you can go back and keep looking at it until you know what it is. And that's what we try and do. Look, if you're, you know, you're in bed at night and you hear some chains rattling in the attic, right, that's an anomaly. If you, I, I hope. And, <laughs> and, but, but you wouldn't conclude it was a ghost unless you heard it more than once or you went up there and yeah. checked. Same deal. Yeah, you know, yeah, no, I, it's a ghost. And I'm out of here. <laughs> it's for sure. Uh, see, you're, this, this is why you're a scientist. Because you could never be in a horror film. You hear chains in the attic rattling and you go, I should investigate that. <laughs> Whereas I leave the house. <laughs> you know, it could be that Jack Sparrow is up there with somebody. I and so, is, so when you do send messages with this, can you explain this message? This is a message? This is, this is a message, this is a message, and uh, this message actually was sent in 1974. Called the Arecibo using, message? Using, uh, it, using that antenna, the, the antenna there in Puerto Rico, the Arecibo. And by the way, if you happen to be going to Puerto Rico next weekend, take the hour and a half or whatever it takes to drive up and see this thing, because it's under threat, right, a financial threat, so it may go away. Go see it, it's worth seeing. And again, it has a transmitter on board, uh, and that transmitter is uh, more than a million watts, okay? So it's a pretty powerful transmitter. It's aimed into a huge antenna, right? Thousand feet across, so it makes a signal that is the mother of all transmitted signals. I mean, if a bird flies through the beam, right, you have an instant sandwich, right? It's that powerful a signal. So that, that signal could be heard by aliens if they were looking in the right direction. Are you going to use this antenna, the one in Puerto Rico? We'll use something like this, probably not Arecibo itself, but, you know, when, when Arecibo is not frying sparrows as they fly by, it's being used to protect Earth from uh, oncoming asteroids.
So that is a major project. In it. So uh, as we were saying, Alan, it does receive signals. So that's where SETI did some of its early work before they had the Allen Telescope Array, their own committed observatory. Um, but it can also be used to send out signals. And so as an asteroid is coming by, you can send a radio signal, watch it bounce back. It's called radar. And that same radar can now be used not to pinpoint a nearby asteroid, but a distant star. The big difference between the messages we're sending uh, are twofold. First of all, we'll unpack them more because the information in this message, starting at the top, numbers from one to 10, underneath there's this little piece that has the atomic numbers of five chemical elements important to life on Earth, um, hydrogen, nitrogen, carbon, oxygen, phosphorus. Then those little uh, sections, those little block-like squares on either side is how many of each of those atoms there are in different parts of the DNA molecule. Then you see the double spiral of the DNA molecule heading down to a human being. On one side, there's this globular uh, of, of number uh, of, of blocks. That's the population of Earth. Uh, on the other side, it's how tall are human beings. Of course, they don't know yards or inches, but it's the wavelength that was used to transmit. Underneath that is a diagram of the solar system, third planet uh, from the sun moved toward us to indicate we come from Earth, and then a diagram of the telescope dish itself. So there's a lot of information crammed into there. And, and it looks like when they get it, they're going to be like, these dudes are still playing Space Invaders. <laughs> yeah. Dude, they don't even have PS4 yet? We're not talking to them. They can do better resolution, right? What they're, 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 they're doing too much. But this is, you know, you were asking, what do we send? I think this is an issue that you and I have very different views on. Seth, your, your view has been send them everything on the Google servers. Just send them as much data as possible. Is that, is that still your view? It's definitely my view. Look, this is a greeting card to the aliens. I mean, it has that nice rendition of Neil down <laughs> at the bottom card. there. And, and, and also the solar system, right? You see the uh, nine planets, there were nine then. Uh, and, and Earth is offset toward Neil. That's, that's, uh, would, that's would, a message, but a greeting are, card. Are, are these greeting cards too? Yeah, they're greeting cards too. This is the Voyager record for those who uh, are lacking the visual on this presentation. And it has pictures, people were so upset by the Pioneer plaque. You, you may remember that. It had the nudie cutie engraving, looked like a license plate, right? And the guy had his upraised hand, which I was told by a guy at the University that's of Washington, the that's the universal symbol of war, that upraised hand. Anyhow, and oh, you know, wait. but, the, right but, but the nudity offended people. They thought the Klingons cannot handle human nudity. <laughs> Well, I gotta admit, if I was an alien and this space uh, vehicle came, I'd be like, "Dude, get some pants!" Like, yeah. But but you know that. But, that wait, wait, but they, but they never wear pants in the movies. <laughs> Have you ever noticed that the aliens are never dressed and they've lost all their hair? There's no modesty at all. But on the other hand, they have no genitals. Okay, so. What we need to uh, expect is that the aliens are going to know there are going to be some ambiguities of interpreting our messages. But the, the main uh, thing I'd say about all these messages is they start at the right starting point, which is you've got to look for something universal. Because the aliens won't speak English or Spanish or Mandarin, <laughs> but if they can either build a radio receiver or snab a spacecraft as it's flying by, they know some math and science to build that technology. I think the big shift of where we go for messages that we really intend to be intercepted is to unpack it. I mean, there's no reason 
that you need to have this in a little Pac-Man format, right. that, that you have a much more detailed uh, explanation of who we are. So yes. back, back to Seth's point, which I think makes a lot of sense, if you're just going to send them all this information, right, you would send it in code, and it would seem to me that would be easier for them to figure out binary code because, if they're, because math is how we know the universe, right? So you send somebody a bunch of zeros and ones, it's not going to take them too long to figure that out. Whereas two naked people, they're like, these dudes are a little freaky, I'm not sure. Like, you know? And the, the, the picture of the naked people also assumes that they're going to have sight. The reason I would send the internet as opposed to these greeting cards is that indeed, Chuck is right, you look at this thing, you don't know what you're looking at. Maybe those are our house plants or our pets or, or whatever. Whereas if you send the internet, you see this, this, these three letters, C-A-T. Of course, you don't know that they're letters, but you just see that symbol. And you see it over and over and over and over. You see it millions of times. You did their 400,000 cat videos, their pictures of cats, their descriptions of cats, their how to operate on your cat. They have all this stuff, right? And so the computers would go through that and they would collate all the information that's attached to that little symbolism, C-A-T. And when they're done, they'd have some idea of who actually runs the planet, right? Yes, cats on toilets. Yeah. <laughs> See, right. my, my big fear is that the aliens are like these intelligent cats. They know we're here. They just don't care. They just... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fortunately, we don't have to feed them. We're going to take another break. We'll be back uh, for another segment. And after that, we're going to let you grill us like a shrimp on the barbie with your questions. We'll be back with more Talk All-Star. We're back here in Brooklyn, New York with Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your host, Seth Shostak. I'm a, an astronomer at the SETI Institute in lovely, glamorous Mountain View, California. And my guest, Doug Vakoch from METI International, Alan Sakian. Alan is a science communicator, one of the organizers of NANO, this, this, this whole event here, and a science communicator also in San Francisco. And Chuck Nice, who won't divulge where he actually lives, uh, he's a regular here on Star <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let, let's, let's get back to this because you're saying, Doug, okay, I don't like your idea of sending the internet. After all, there's porn on the internet or something. I mean, you don't like it. What would you send? What are you going to send? I, you know, I think the, the assumption of sending everything on the internet is information in itself means something. That's what I'm doubtful about. Uh, now, it, it, it might, uh, for me, it, it is to be quite frank, one of the ugliest proposals I've heard of is just send them a lot of information and hope they can sift through it and make sense of it. I mean, I have no objection. Uh, you know, I've heard some people say, don't send them everything that we've created or we'll have nothing to exchange in the future. I, I think humanity is pretty creative. We'll continue to create new stuff. But I think we can send something like uh, the, the Arecibo message on steroids, where we're starting with some of the basics to make it easier to understand I'm skeptical about them being able to go through and make this link between the letters C-A-T and the images of the cat and interpret what that means if we don't give them a little support in advance. Just as a hy hypothetical, uh, would you be willing to talk uh, to aliens who are dumber than we are? I would, I would love to, uh, but the problem is how do we make contact? Because if they're dumber than we are, and if we talk about that in technical terms, well, so they haven't invented radio then. 
So we're just barely uh, invented radio. Would you talk to them if they? Well, uh, I, w- I would, but I, it is so incredibly unlikely because really the only way this whole thing works and we make contact is if they've been at it a lot longer than we have. So we've been having the ability to uh, send and receive radio signals for less than a century. If that's the norm in our galaxy, that is, and, and remember, we are 13 billion years old as a galaxy. What is the chance that 200-year-old civilizations are going to exist at exactly yeah. the same time? It's like in a, in a whole dark night, two fireflies each flick on for a moment. What's the chance it's exactly the same time? So I would love to talk with someone less intelligent. I just think it's incredibly unlikely we're going to make that match. Doug, Doug, I have to wait, point out on behalf of the fireflies that they actually do sync up. Doug, they do. That's well, a, good. And that's, the behavior of because fireflies. they get involved in Medi. That's yeah, it. They're, yeah, it's yeah, the yeah. natural I thing. I just thought it would be enlightening for you. <laughs> so, All right. Wait, Doug disagrees with you about sending the whole internet. I kind of enjoy the idea of sending the whole internet and letting them... Uh, so what do you send? What is your uh, message? Yeah, indeed. And what's wrong with the internet to say that we've, we've, we've shot our... We've, we don't have any dry powder. We've let it all go. We've told them everything. The internet doubles in size about every year, right? So the, the, the facts are the internet, you know, 100 years from now isn't going to be the internet you have now, right? I'm not worried. Is, is nobody going to write any new music or, or do anything interesting for 100 years? I, I, I agree. I don't have any objections. There are some critics uh, of transmitting who say, keep something for the next round. But I agree. Humanity is very creative. We're very creative. We'll well, come up should with we send stuff. the bad stuff? I mean, no, we should send something bare bones, something elegant, and something that really has a chance of being understood. What is that for you? What would for, that for, message be? For me, it is starting with something as basic as counting, uh, and then from that, moving up to an explanation of the radio signals themselves. So with a little basic arithmetic, with a little addition and division, we can start describing radio waves. And then we can describe those same sorts of waves through simple mathematics as they travel through air, how we communicate with our voices, with music. So I think starting with something more bare bones has a greater chance of being understood. But I think the most important thing is not to get caught up in any one particular activity or, or, or message as the best message. I think the big, the big challenge is to come out of the mindset of the messages we've sent in the past are the best we can do And so our goal would be every year to come up with a new approach. So once we have the bandwidth to transmit um, with optical signals, you can send a massive amount of data. I'd send send a lot, but make it coherent. I would use motion capture to capture the three-dimensional movements of human beings as we interact with one another, uh, because I think that's actually a more intelligible way of communicating what we look like than these squashed 2D images that really require a lot of cultural learning to know how to unpack. So, so you're kind of saying, we're going to ring their doorbells, and if, they, if they open the door, then we'll give them the sales pitch. And part of it is that we don't have the technology <laughs> the to the sales, sales pitch Austin, right now. <laughs> so we, we ring the doorbell because we can ring the doorbell well, and we want to be understood, and we want, we want to start with them understanding something. And Seth, I hope actually my intuition about your approach is wrong. Because what I would like is to know that the aliens really don't need any additional primer, no tutorial. Send them enough data and they really can get it and recreate it and understand us. If that happens, that's great. I just think we can help with the process. Let me just say as a comedian, if we do ring their doorbell, can we please leave a flaming bag of poop? That's all I'm saying. (laughs) 
All right, let, let's return to uh, something uh, that's highly emotional. We touched on it a little bit earlier, and that is every time that I talk at a cocktail party about this idea, which is not too often, but only because nobody ever invites me to parties, the usual reaction is not, well, are you going to send the internet? Are you going to send one of these messages? Are you going to, you know, is it going to be a 2D photo? Is it going to be a 3D photo? Is it going to be what? That's not what they say. They say, well, wait a minute. Isn't that dangerous? The argument being that you don't know what the aliens are like, and if you do, be sure and see us afterwards, because we want to talk to you. Or somebody ought to talk to you, anyhow. We don't know what they're like, and maybe they're all friendly, and maybe they're all, you know, very peaceable and, and, and into Zen, and they sit around all day and contemplate their navels if they have navels, which they probably don't, and, and you know, play video games and so forth. But it could be that you have bad luck, and you have to alert a society that's very aggressive, because after all, in any Darwinian system, aggression pays, at least at some level. So then they come and incinerate the Earth, and the consequence for you is that your tombstone reads responsible for the obliteration of Earth. Now, that's a bummer for you and your <laughs> So It's obliterated. That's actually obliterated with everything else. It's, obliter <laughs> it's obliterated. Yes, that's right. The tombstone goes away. All right. <laughs> that's what they say, Doug. They say this is dangerous, and you, you, should, you should just not make any noise. It's like, as is so often said, you know, making a sound in the forest. Not a good idea, because you don't know what's out there. So what do you say? Well, I say when you hear that, and you also hear it in a soundbite from Stephen Hawking, I mean, who honestly are you going to believe, if that's all you hear, Stephen Hawking or Doug Vakoch? So I, I think um, the idea that this is something to be afraid of um, really resonates with people. And part of it is that when we're trying to figure out how risky something is that we really can't put a clear number on, the way we do it is we think of the most vivid images we can. Uh, it, it's what cognitive psychologists call the availability heuristic. It's sort of a guideline. How do we figure out what's going to happen? Well, you pick the image that is most readily available. And what could be a more vivid image than the Europeans coming to the New World and decimating the indigenous people? So if you, if you rely on your gut-level instincts, you're going to be opposed. Uh, to, uh, because was, I'm just thinking you're being a little hard on white people, man. I'm just <laughs> fucking white people. <laughs> we expect yeah. the extraterrestrials to be as bad as we humans have been to one another. And maybe they will be. Or as bad as we are to ants. We don't even think twice. We don't. We don't think twice. Well, okay, so with that in mind, wait, but yep. I hate to yep. cut you off. Okay, no. Because I'm looking, I'm looking out in the audience right now, and I can see that people clearly have made up their mind. So I just want to pull the audience right Good now. Good idea. Super intelligent, super advanced alien race receives a message from us, realizes we are inferior in every way. How many people think that they will come here and say, oh, let us come and help them. And then the second choice would be, that's choice A. Let us come in a philanthropic way and help these people advance as a race. Or choice B, dude, we got some new workers. We got some new <laughs> slaves. Okay? How many people think it's A? Yay! Yay! Good universe. How many people think it's B? 
Okay, so you're right. So we should, we should reach out. No, 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 Chuck. The real answer is C. How many of them don't care? (laughs) There you go. (laughs) You didn't even consider that. And I think think choices A and B actually characterize what we usually expect. We're We're usually looking for either salvation or annihilation right. from the extraterrestrial. And I think it is actually very reassuring to think that in a world where we don't know what's going to happen um, with North Korea, and we don't know when the next hurricane is going to come because of global warming, to think that maybe one of the dangers that faces us is something that is outside and not created by us and that we have some control over it simply by not transmitting. And I wish I could tell you that there was a reasonable explanation for saying if we don't transmit, we're somehow going to be safer. But at least for me, I can't realistically promise you that. So I would say if the aliens are out there and they want to come get us, it's too late. The good news is they've had a lot of time. And I I think the typical answer that SETI folks give for why the aliens aren't here is option D, which is it's incredibly expensive to travel between the stars. Exactly. That's part of option C, too, because it's so far away that even if they get the message, they'll say, cool, but they're 100 light years away. They're focused on colonizing one, two, three stars that are just a couple light years away from them. They're not going to travel 100 light years just to talk to some pond scum humans. Or if they do, it's maybe just to talk but not to actually come. Yeah. I don't know. I, there have been panels. There have been actual legitimate scientific panels. Not to say that this is illegitimate. <laughs> but there have been legitimate science panels about what would motivate the aliens to come here. Hollywood asks that question a lot, actually, because they want to know why did the aliens come and start destroying Santa Monica? Which, by the way, for those of us who live in Northern California, that's not such a bad deal. But. <laughs> And, and the facts are, there's nothing here that they need, right? We don't, they don't need the water. They got the water. They, they, they don't need the molybdenum, the gold, any, the unobtainium, none of that. They don't need any of that stuff, right? They've got it where they are, and they saved the shipping charges. The only thing that we've got that they don't have is, if you will, the rock and roll. I mean, they've got, we've got our culture. Yeah. But if they want that, they can just tune it in. They don't have to come here. Yep. So, but but would, would, let's say we actually do fine. We make contact. Wouldn't we immediately, well, two questions now. One, what is the protocol? Because you guys actually yeah. are listening and, and transmitting. Do we have the people here who are doing it? So one, what is the protocol? And two, if we did find it, wouldn't we immediately start trying to make plans to go to them? Well, it's hard to go to them. I, I just want to point that out. Well, I know. We, 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 we showed this pioneer plaque up here is bolted to a spacecraft that could get from here to, you know, the other side of the country in, in a matter of a few minutes. All right, so it's pretty fast. But Step one is world peace. And yeah, but, not, but for it to get to the nearest other star, not that it's aimed there, would take it 75,000 years. So that's a long time. And, and in fact, that prompts me because we want to go to questions from the audience here. But, Doug, to ask you, look, you're going to do this, you're going to broadcast, and maybe you're broadcasting to nearby stars, so they're typically a few tens of light years away, so you shouldn't even expect anything to come back for decades. And, you know, maybe, I mean, maybe decades from now, you'll, I don't know, be doing neurosurgery or something. I don't know what you'll be doing. But, you know, suppose you don't get anything back. 
What was the scientific value, would you say? Well, the scientific value is the same scientific value that Frank Drake did when he did his first SETI search in 1960. So he said, I'm, gonna, I'm going to listen for radio signals from two nearby stars, and I'm going to test the hypothesis that, in fact, all stars are populated, they have planets, and they're transmitting in our direction. And he showed that wasn't happening, at least at the frequencies he was observing. And then that research progressed, and now we have SETI researchers who've moved out to studying 1,000 stars and 10,000 stars and 50,000 stars. Uh, there's a projection in the next decade, we'll look at a million stars. And we have this equipment that's helping us, the James so, Space So we have the information, yes. and so we can, in that time, either discover life or we can get a fix on how rare it is, at least as we have searched. And so the same will hold for Medi, but you've, you've really tapped into the critical difference, which is the patience it requires, the long time scale to have any chance of success. But it's an experiment, and then at the end of it, we have to say, we hope we have gotten a response back, but if not, then we still don't know whether we're alone. So it's an unusual sort of science, both SETI and Medi, because we have the possibility of knowing for sure they're out there, but if we don't find anything, we can't say the opposite, that we know we're alone. We can say maybe we are, maybe they're out there, maybe they're not motivated, they've turned inward instead of exploring, um, or maybe we just haven't looked at the right frequencies or in the right ways. So it remains an ambiguity, and I, 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 for me, one of the personal values that this search has for humanity is that it affirms the importance of doing things that don't have guarantees. And in fact, yeah. it was that same mindset over 20 years ago that led to the discovery of exoplanets. When, when Bill Baruki, yeah. a scientist at NASA, said, you know, I think there's a way that you could see this dimming as a planet crosses in front of its star, and he ran the calculations, and he got the funding, and he built the instrument over the course of decades, but it was all to search for something that no one knew was there. But if he hadn't had that faith and a willingness to expose his hypothesis to the data, that we would now know that there are planets everywhere. We might luck out, and that's what we find with extraterrestrials, or we might end in silence. But if we don't start, if we don't make the intentional decision, we won't know one way or the other. Exploration, one of the noblest things we do. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening to Star Talk All Stars. Woo! Thanks to my co-host, Seth Nice, Alan Sockman, and Doug Backos. I'm Seth Kraftbeck. Till next yeah. time. Ow!